Well, good morning, Green Bible Church. It is a joy to uh, be with you this morning. What a celebration of life we've seen this morning in our baptisms. It is uh, truly a treasure to continue to see God at work, is it not? Yeah. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing the supernatural. God has the ability to change hearts. The world says the supernatural doesn't happen. Everything's rationalistic, and we say, not so. God is a supernatural God, and he does supernatural works to save people. We saw that this morning. God also purposes upon men's hearts to um, be helpers, uh, to be those who are leaders filled with conviction. Uh, and we, we know those men among us, men and women, or for that matter, um, we recognize them. And tomorrow we will, at Veterans Day. And if you're a veteran among us right now, I would just like to ask for you to stand and be recognized as someone who the Lord has placed in their heart the ability to serve country and die for the other freedoms of others. If you're a veteran, can I have you stand? And just be recognized by the congregation. Brothers, I appreciate your service, and the congregation does as well. Thank you for your service. I do want to take time to honor you and honor the service, because there is a unique thing that your service does that directly parallels the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your service is honored, and we do thank you for it. Does it make sense in our country of 327 million people they were only defended by 5% of that population. Only 18 million out of 327 are veterans. And these 5% are those who protect all Americans from domestic and foreign enemies. They drive the tanks, they shoot the weapons, they fly the planes. They navigate the destroyers and the aircraft carriers across the oceans in order that we might take the battle to the shores of our enemies, to project military might abroad, and get others to consider if they are going to come and challenge us on our shore. These veterans engage in battle. They're the brothers and sisters who stand the watch. They experience war, hell on earth, from enemy fire to improvised explosive devices, deployments of six and 12 months, sleepless nights, and fallen friends. They soak up the experiences that 95% of Americans don't want to and likely never will have. And the real tragedy of their service is this. Most military veterans do not have a worldview that rightly explains their service. They don't have a worldview that explains evil, violence, death, sorrow, grief, let alone grace, mercy, and love. And they don't have a worldview that confronts the evil and pride which exists in their own hearts. And how do I know this? How can I say these things? The rate of suicide in the military is a clue to us. It's a mystery. It's an enigma. It's a conundrum. It makes no sense that the veterans are two times more likely to commit suicide than their fellow Americans. Statistically, it is the case that 14 Americans commit suicide. And in that period of time that 14 suicides happen, 30 American military veterans will kill themselves as well. In September, the Department of Veterans Affairs had a study that they put out, covered a 10-year period from 2008 to 2017. This is recent history. In 10 years, 60,000 American military veterans took their lives. That is 16 veterans per day for 10 years. One of those was Clay. Clay was a Marine corporal in Houston, Texas, and I want to share some details of his story as we get started this morning. Beginning with a topic... This should be very near and dear to our hearts. Suicide is heavy. And I want to come to you really this morning very pastorally and say there are answers. And I ask you in, to engage with me in this conversation because God does speak to suicide. There are things that need to be said and things that need to be spoken. And in our polite, politically correct society, they would like to shut down conversations like this. But I'm going to have this with you this morning. You need to know the truth about suicide. You need to know that there is only one way in, and there is only one way out. And we're going to go through this this morning. Clay's story begins like this. In 2007, he was deployed to Afghanistan. One month into his tour, his bunkmate was killed in an IED explosion. Three weeks later, he lost another friend who was shot and killed in an ambush. The day of the funeral of that fallen brother, Clay was shot in the hand. And then he was sent home to the U.S. to recover. 
It was at this time that panic attacks and depression began to come on Clay, as you can probably imagine. To the extent that Clay was diagnosed with PTSD and given medication. His military service didn't end. He joined an elite sniper unit in 2008. And it was with this unit in war in Iraq that he couldn't wrestle fully with the thoughts of service to country. The evil of the enemy. The dying of his friends and those being sent home maimed and wounded. How do you justify what you're seeing and experiencing if you don't hold truth? Clay, from everything that I read, did not have a biblical worldview. He wanted life to matter. He wanted to have purpose and identity because the image of God marks each and every one of us. And in 2010, he left the Marine Corps, the very organization that he joined for purpose and identity. He left them. He sought for purpose and meaning in life in mission trips to Haiti and to Chile, working with those who were there for disaster relief after an earthquake. He went to college. He got married. Then a year later, he was divorced. He rode with a group of of bicyclists, ride for recovery for veterans, again seeking purpose and identity, trying to connect on the horizontal, to put life together, to make sense out of what otherwise seemed like chaos. But did he ever, in the story of his life, address the vertical relationship, the spiritual one, the supernatural one? After moving back to Texas in 2011 and getting a a new job, a new truck, a new apartment, a new girlfriend, Clay went in the middle of the apartment and with a single gunshot wound to the head, he ended his life. No less than four people close to him have survivor's guilt, each feeling some measure of blame for him taking his life. And as I read through this story, and as I was struck by this, and had to get up and walk around my office, contending with the idea that brothers and sisters in in combat arms with me, brothers and sisters, veterans, fellow veterans, could be so deeply impacted by the affairs of life and not know truth, not have it presented to them. Where was the Bible in Clay's story? Where was the transcendent thought? Where was the supernatural? Where was Jesus in Clay's story? I thought about these four absences from his story. These four things that were not there. And I could add to those a myriad of other absences. But is suicide best understood in what is absent? Consider the conclusions that come from another article. I don't believe these men are Christians. Could be wrong. This is a secular article. came from 2006. The title is Why Veterans Die by Suicide and How to Stop It. Christopher Goldsmith, he says this. Years later, I figured out that the common theme among veterans who choose suicide is, as Dr. Thomas Joyner says, an overall sense of hopelessness combined with severe mental anguish, a feeling that we've lost control of our lives and that there's not one thing that we can get back, that we can do to get back on path. So for Christopher and for Dr. Thomas Joyner, the common theme in veteran suicide is belief. Is belief what you believe. And again, if you notice, belief in four absences. What was absent? Hope, relief, control, and help. What is missing from these evaluations? Certainly all of us would, would necessarily agree that suicide comes down to belief, does it not? You act on what you know. What other common theme is there among veterans who choose suicide? Is suicide best understood in what is absent or what is present? Can we reduce all suicides down to a one-word common theme addressing what is present? Now, I'm not trying to be overly reductionistic or simplistic with this, but the Bible does speak in very clear terms, does it not? Are we not those who understand the righteous and the wicked? Are we not those that understand heaven and hell? Are we not those that understand gender, boy and girl, even when our society is confused about these things? There's a very, very straight line that the Bible seems to cut, offering such simplicity. So can we, biblically, with one word, get a better window into the heart of the issue of suicide? Is that important for us? Can we tackle that together? Do we want to go to the heart of suicide and see what is there? What is present 
not what is absent. That's what I want to do with you this morning. I believe we can. Do we want to get to the heart of suicide? We must. Certainly the Bible does give us a single word description of suicide. You know these words. Suicide is murder. Suicide is sin. Yes, these are correct. But there is a word beyond both of these that we need to chase down this morning so that we can be biblically informed about the heart of suicide. Here is where we're going this morning. I need to show you the one way into suicide and the only way out. This will serve as your outline for the morning. The one way into suicide and the only way out. So that you will be biblically informed about the path to and the prevention of suicide. Not only in your own heart and mind, but obviously in the hearts and minds of those who are nearest to you. A Veterans Affairs Suicide Prevention Report, the one I mentioned earlier from 2019, it makes these bold declarations. It says, number one, there is no all-encompassing explanation for suicide. Number two, there is no single path to suicide. And number three, there is no single path away from suicide. And with all due respect to the hardworking folks at the Veterans Affairs Administration, I intend to present to you this morning that the Bible refutes each of those three conclusions. There is a single red thread that ties all suicide together. And instead of spilling out a bunch of socially acceptable platitudes, we're going to look at the substance of the heart-level issues that produce suicide. This is our journey for this morning. And what we're tackling, I understand full well, is an emotional monster. I know that. There are so many feelings and wounds wound and bound up all together. It is the most grand of all grand disasters. And yet I want to liken it to you this morning. I want to liken it, suicide, to a stovetop fire in the kitchen. A stovetop fire in the kitchen with the potential to burn the whole house down and one that creates a great moment of personal intensity. Have you ever walked in on such a fire? I have. Not only a kitchen fire that actually had four-foot flames coming off the stove, but I've also been in fires of suicidal thought. I can take you back to 1996 with my own suicidal thoughts. I can take you to 2010 when it was a young man that I coached at a high school hockey team who attempted suicide. I can take you to 2015 when a woman was on the phone at Grace Community Church and there was a group of us offering counsel and she would later have traffic backed up under the 805 freeway bridge for miles where she was threatening to jump. In each of these moments, there seemed to be a grand disaster. Flames so high that they melted the microwave. But there's one underlying cause that started each disaster. There's one heat source. The first stop to end the stovetop kitchen fire is to do what? Is to do what? To remove the source of heat. The heat source underneath suicide is idolatry. The heat source underneath suicide is idolatry. This is point number one in your notes. Idolatry is the one way into suicide. And to show this to you, I need you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 17. The Bible has about seven instances of suicide in it. And I'm going to take you to 2 Samuel 17 and show you one of these instances. And we're going to walk through and talk about suicide being found as, the, as idolatry. We're going to look at idolatry being the way into suicide. Now, I know that in saying this, I owe you this explanation. I owe you pastorally time to digest and think about these things with me. I owe that to you. So walk through this with me graciously. Work with me. I'll work with you. We'll walk through this. We'll, we'll eat this together. This is a big steak that we've got to eat. We have, to, we have to think on these things and consider these things. They, they have very much weight in our lives. I owe you an explanation because the question that you've asked, if you are a suicide survivor, the question that has haunted you, if this has been near 
you in any capacity. The question that has haunted you and left you sleepless for hours and days is the question, why? Everybody needs to know the answer to the question, why? Why did he take his life? Why did she take her life? And how dare I come in so quickly and drop this one-word explanation of suicide? You might not even be ready to tackle this with me. Because you're still thinking, what about the external pressures that my loved one faced, Pastor Oliver? And you're exactly right. External pressures. My dad lost his job and couldn't provide for the family, and that brought great shame and guilt to him. External pressures. And and then maybe you would say to me, what about his internal pains? There were internal pains, and you're right. There were internal pains. Maybe sister got pregnant outside of marriage, and this wasn't going to sit too well with the family. And the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment were overwhelming. And as a result, she took her life. In fact, these are two categories of suicide presented by Pastor Nicholas Ellen at the ACBC conference that I went to in October. I find them to be extremely helpful to understand the why of suicide. Hold on to these. In fact, these are going to become part of your outline here in a second. External pressures and internal pains. When you need to understand suicide, look to these two, external pressures and internal pains. If you've asked why in the past, certainly your answer is found in one of these two categories. The one says, external pressures, they did stuff to me. It did stuff to me. That's external pressures. Internal pain says, I did stuff to me. Let's look at these. Because I need to show you that they both reduce down to idolatry. They are two rivers that feed the ocean of idolatry. Or as Hall of Fame catcher Yogi Berra once said to a friend getting directions to his house, when you get to the fork in the road, take it. And so we need to take it. We're going to take the left side, I guess you could say now. Let's take the left fork in the road that we're at right now and look at the external pressures that bear down on our life that indicate idolatry. Let's turn to the left and see how external pressures expose idolatry. This might be 1A in your notes. How external pressures expose idolatry. You're in 2 Samuel 7. And I want to explain real quick external pressures. Just talk about this with me for a second. What are external pressures? 2 Samuel 17 is where you're going. Did I, did I mess that up really? Where did, I set, where did I send you? I didn't say 17 Samuels 2, did I? Okay. okay. External pressures. The events of life. What events of life are external pressures? Losing a job. Losing a girlfriend, a flat tire, an economic and financial collapse, a hurricane. All of these are external pressures. Where do they come from? We'll talk about that. Here's what you need to know for 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17. Here's what you need to know. We're talking about an event that happened 3,000 years ago. King David's kingdom is in a free fall. That's an external pressure. His son Absalom is trying to steal the throne from David. In fact, David's greatest counselor, Ahithophel, has sided with Absalom. But wise King David has left Absalom with another counselor whose name is Hushai. And Hushai is a double agent working for King David. We join the story as Ahithophel is giving a second round of advice to Absalom on how to beat his dad and take his throne. Consider the life of Ahithophel, the counselor, with me as we read the text. And I want you to think about these questions when it comes to Ahithophel's life. Who does Ahithophel trust most? Who is Ahithophel's counselor? What gives Ahithophel joy? Read with me from 2 Samuel 17, verse 1. The text says, Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and exhausted and terrify him. So that all the people who are with him will flee. And then I will strike down the king alone. And I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. And so the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also. And let us hear from him what he has to say. 
And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai said to Absalom, this time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. What three character lessons do we learn about Ahithophel from the text? Well, let's take a look at, let's take a look at Ahithophel and his character. Number one, you need to see that Ahithophel is wise. Ahithophel is wise. This is a great military plan. The text is even going to tell us this. The use of the element of surprise, the speed at which they're going to do this, the numbers, the timing of day, the weariness of the opponent. This is wise. This is wisdom. Ahithophel is a smart guy. And the thing is, Ahithophel knows that he's a smart guy. What do we learn second? We learn also that he is ruthless and he is godless. He's ruthless and godless. Ahithophel has no problem at all taking the life of the Lord's anointed. This screams of Ahithophel's godlessness. He actually believed that in his own strength, he could tear down what God had supernaturally raised up, particularly the throne of King David. In 2 Samuel chapters 1 and 4, David takes the lives of three men who attempted, or who didn't attempt, they, they said that they did kill Saul and Saul's son, Ishboseth, both anointed by God as kings of Israel. Twice David had a chance to kill Saul, and he did not. And why did David not kill King Saul when he had the opportunity twice? Because he feared God. David feared God. Boy, I think about the life of David, and I think about David pouring his heart out in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. David was a man of confession. David was a man of fear of God. David was a man who loved God. Something had changed David's heart. Not the case for Ahithophel. There's no such fear in this man. I would point out to you that Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Ahithophel is full of wisdom. He's, he's wise, but this is a wise fool. He's a true sophomore. And by his plan, he, Ahithophel, will strike David dead in a few short hours if he has it his way. Number three, we learn that Ahithophel is confident and persuasive. Absalom and the elders are pleased with the plan. They like his boldness and ferocity, and they're ready to make his plan happen with him. Ahithophel is wise, ruthless, godless, persuasive, and even highly confident in his own abilities. Someone who believes that he has control over this life. But Absalom is not a very confident man, is he? And we saw in the text that he needs a second opinion. And this is where the double agent Hushai enters the conversation. And we see what he says in verse 7. Ahithophel's advice is not good this time. From verses 8 to 13, Hushai explains why Ahithophel's plan will be a total failure. And then he lays out his own plan, which if Absalom agrees to, will give David more time to get away. So we get to the conclusion of Absalom's plans and we read in verse 14, Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Jump into Ahithophel's world at this moment. What is Ahithophel feeling at this moment? What's he feeling right here? Is this a bad day at work? It's more than that, isn't it? This is profound in this man's life. This is a moment of great external pressure. And if you are godless, prideful, wise, confident, bold, and persuasive, what happens at the moment in your life when you are publicly and shockingly rejected? We know what happens. You can say the words with me. Anger, bitterness, resentment, hatred, self-righteousness goes full speed at this moment in his life. And he says in his heart, I'm the best that you've got, Absalom, and you reject me? How dare you? My plan was perfect. It's not difficult to see how the rejection could harden Ahithophel's heart, right? You can just imagine the next series of thoughts in the man's mind. You want to reject my perfect plan? Go ahead. Not one of you is worthy to have another piece of my advice. I'm going to make sure that you never do. I deserve better than your world, and you aren't worthy of mine. 
What you need to understand is that the external pressures of life generate internal responses. The external pressures of life continually generate internal responses. We're talking about providence. We're talking about sovereignty. Even this message this morning is God putting his providence and sovereignty on your heart. What is he squeezing out? Your heart is like a a sponge or like an orange. You know, God gets all the orange juice out of you that he possibly can. He uses the moments of life, the external pressures to squeeze, to show you what's in you. And he's doing that here in this text. The external pressures of life generate internal responses. The external pressures of life, they show the reality of control, that you're not in control. The external pressures of life, they make the world seem so big and you so small. And when you are tossed around by an ocean of external pressures, God can seem absent or at the least extremely small. But what is the reality and the truth in the face of any external pressure? What is the reality? What is true? Verse 14 says... Just like we would see in Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. What does the text say in verse 14, the second half? For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring about calamity on Absalom. What is this verse telling us? It's telling you that sovereignty is real. That God always has had a plan. And he's always working it out. And it doesn't matter how wicked you are or how self-righteous you want to live. He's working through all of it to squeeze your heart and show you who you really are. God is sovereign. God is all-powerful. He's fully in charge. We're not meant to just go through stuff in life. We're meant to grow through stuff. That's what he wants for us. Life has been hard since Genesis 3 and filled with sin and pain and brokenness. Don't you know that suffering and tribulation are the order of the day, at least for now? And God is powerfully able to use all the brokenness and pain of life to achieve glory for himself and blessings for his anointed. Well, I just have to think back to the couple of testimonies that we heard to realize all of this. It's playing itself out even today. God is powerful. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Is this what Ahithophel believed? Did he trust God? No. No, we established that he was ruthless, godless, and pride-filled. And so we see the end of the story of Ahithophel in verse 23. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. He was offended. His pride was deeply wounded. He had been building up a kingdom of self for so many years. And what were the bricks of the kingdom of self? They were exclusively that his wisdom and his advice were accepted by men. He received the praise and honor of men for his great wisdom, attributing all of his wisdom to himself. And as long as men continued to take his advice, his kingdom would stand. And the day had come when the kingdom fell. The moment of rejection was here and his kingdom was destroyed. This might even bring a song to your mind that you would have sung in your childhood. One plucked right out of Matthew 7. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came a-tumbling down. The floods came up. And the house on the sand went splat. Who did Ahithophel love? Who did Ahithophel trust? Who did Ahithophel respect, honor, and obey? The answer himself. Ahithophel worshipped himself. He loved his ways, his words, and his wisdom. What do you call the worship of anything other than worship of God? 
idolatry. Here's what you can't miss. Don't miss this. You can't miss this. God's great external pressure exposed Ahithophel's idolatry. He did not kill himself because he was depressed. He killed himself because of the great love that he had for himself. Do you see that? It's not because he was depressed. It's because he had so much love for himself, which amounted to hatred of God and everyone else who would not build his kingdom with him. External pressure exposes idolatry. Do you see this? Do you see this? In what you are going through, is God good to you? In what you are dealing with in your life, is God all you need? Is Jesus' sacrifice enough to know that you have a clear conscience? Your sins are paid. You have an eternal reward to know the Savior, to look vertically and understand the power of God to save men. Is that what you hold on to in your trials? I would hope that you look vertically and don't trust in yourself. External pressures will show you. They will squeeze it right out of you. If external pressures were the left turn and the fork in the road that goes to idolatry, now we need to take the right turn at the fork in the road and we need to go to internal pains. Is it the case, Pastor Oliver, is it the case that internal pains lead to idolatry as well? Can you really make that case? This is where we need to show you next. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Where we'll look to see internal pains expose idolatry. Internal pains expose idolatry. And as you're turning there, what are we talking about when we're talking about internal pains? I want you to consider internal pains with me. Because you've experienced them, I know. I've experienced them, and certainly folks that run towards suicide are and have experienced these internal pains. Number one, guilt. Guilt, a guilty conscience. Maybe even survivor's guilt. Why him and not me? Didn't we see this with Clay? He'd lost a friend in war, and yet he was only shot in the hand. Why me? Why not I die in war? What, what else makes your soul noisy? What else makes for the spinning out of control for your internal emotions? How about shame? How about shame? Could be the poor performance on a test. It could be your poor attitude that you demonstrated at work. It could be because of your past. Maybe your past is loaded with shame. Maybe you've done some bad stuff. What about shame for your line of work? Perhaps Clay had this shame as well, being part of war. Guilt and shame make for a noisy soul. And you can add to those guilt and shame. You can add to that embarrassment. These things create internal pain. This is what it looks like. And what do internal pains lead people to do? Well, we all know this. It leads people to find a release. What are releases that people use for internal pains? Oh, now come on. You know the list, don't you? What do people do with internal pain to get relief? Drugs. Alcohol. Some choose to get involved with cutting themselves. It comes with massive endorphin and adrenaline rush that money can't buy. For me, personally, my internal noise caused me to punch drywall. That's what I wanted to do, shove my hand through drywall. I don't care what it does to my fist. That was my external demonstration of an internal reality. What other risky behavior is involved? Maybe someone takes up skydiving, which isn't necessarily in itself a bad thing. Or they go with binge eating or anorexia or maybe the most prolific of all risky behaviors, sexual promiscuity. You will see also in these folks that are bearing internal pain, people cause themselves to give away very personal possessions. And often this group will make bold declarations. They'll use their mouth to make bold declarations. That's a big part of the story where we're going. But these, the, the ones nearest us, they'll say the words. They'll say the words. I want to kill myself. They'll say the words. Boy, I hope when you hear those words that you grab hold of that and you don't let that moment go. I hope that today I'm giving you the resources to handle the day when someone says to you, I want to kill myself. These and this has the answers to that. Don't run away from that. 
Hold on to that moment and speak truth to that moment. Pay attention when you hear those words because great amounts of internal pain drive those words to come off of the tongue out of the abundance of the heart, particularly when it's squeezed, the mouth speaks. So let's look at internal pain. Who in the Bible has internal pain which exposed idolatry? By now you see his name there in the text, Matthew 27. His name is Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. Judas was a self-serving thief who stole money from the money box in John 13, 2, Satan puts betrayal of Jesus into Judas's heart. He liked that idea. He didn't fight that idea. Rather, he entertained it fully. And then we see in John 13, 27, that Satan entered Judas. This is late on Thursday night, early on Friday morning of Passover, A.D. 33, 2,000 years ago. Next, Judas betrays Jesus to the Sanhedrin, who gather up a Roman cohort, and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they grab Jesus and pull him in. And let's read the text and see how internal pain exposes Judas's idolatry. Matthew 27, verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to the Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying... I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, but they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. What is happening here with Judas? This is internal pain. All the signs are there. All the conditions are met. He has a guilty conscience. He has shame, and he has a noisy soul. Let's look at these. First, we see guilt in Judas's regret. He regretted that Jesus was condemned to die. What kind of regret is this, though? This is the kind of regret of a four-year-old who doesn't want the three-spanking consequence coming because of the disobedience and lying which led to your little brother's new haircut. That's the kind of grief and regret we're seeing here. It's regret of consequences. It's certainly not the regret that leads to repentance and forgiveness, Make no mistake about it, Judas was not repentant. He was not. Warren Wiersbe says that this Greek word here, metamelomai, it indicates not a sorrow for sin that leads to a change of mind or action, but this is a regret at being caught, a remorse that leads to despair. He's sad about his consequences. Despair is part of internal pain. Second, we see his shame. We see his shame in his audible confession, where once he and the Sanhedrin were in agreement about Jesus, now Judas is mindful of Jesus' innocence. Judas is himself a double-minded man. He's extremely conflicted in his heart and in his mind, so much so that he takes to the Sanhedrin a confession of sin. This is foolish. What is this going to do? On Judas' testimony, are they going to release Jesus now because Judas said that he was innocent? No, not at all. Judas' mind is loaded with the absurd. In his shame, his mouth is able to produce these words, which are themselves the height of vanity. And then third, we see a completely noisy soul. How does Judas choose to release some of the internal pain? What is the physical action? Throwing this ever-present reminder of regret, these 30 pieces of silver in his pocket, throwing these into the temple sanctuary. Judas's internal pain had its final outworking in his suicide. Unable to reconcile or to find relief for a noisy soul at guilt and shame, Judas hanged himself. Who told Judas to hang himself? Who gave Judas the last advice that he took? Whose voice did Judas truly believe? Who did he believe and honor and obey? The answer is his own. And what do you call someone who believes and obeys their own voice rather than God? You call that person an idolater. You're in your Bibles at Matthew 17. Would you just turn back to Matthew 11? Here is what you can't miss. Here is what you can't miss. Judas's internal pain exposed the true source of his faith. 
He didn't kill himself out of grief over Jesus. Judas killed himself out of love for himself. I I hope you understand what I'm saying. Judas did not kill himself out of grief over Jesus. Judas killed himself out of love for himself. He convinced himself that the most loving thing to do for himself in this time of a noisy soul and shame and guilt was to cease living. That's what he told himself. He liked the voices in his own mind. He didn't seek for outside counsel. He didn't want to turn to the word of God. He was walking with God for three years. He did not want to listen to God. He loved himself. And he took action on his own advice. He'd followed Jesus for three years. And at the end of his life, Judas proved that he did not trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Judas trusted himself. And he only wanted to please himself, which is why he was the thief of the money box. He had heard the message. He was in close proximity to Jesus as you are to me now. And listened to the words of the Savior That Judas dismissed. Listen to the words of Matthew 11 verse 28. Jesus speaking says this. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These words alone are the words that heal a noisy soul. These words alone are the words of life. Did these words just quiet your noisy soul for a moment? Can I just speak to the one person in the room for a second who might have entertained suicidal thoughts this past week? Friend, if this is you. These words of Jesus are so timely and so gloriously true. God has been so gracious to you to navigate you here today. You've just heard Jesus offer. Jesus just said to you, he will give you rest. Rest is what your weary soul wants more than anything. You have been hiding behind a wall of idolatry. The wall of idolatry that you built. And behind your wall, you've engaged in all kinds of sinful activities while God made you to worship him and praise him alone. You have found an endless number of ways to worship yourself. Only adding guilt and shame to an already noisy soul. You've pretended for a long time that God doesn't exist, that God doesn't care and can't see in. You love listening to yourself, but these words just offered rest to your soul And you know it. You know it. He brought you to this church for this message. You know, 30 years ago today, the Berlin Wall was torn down in Germany. Largely in response to President Ronald Reagan famously and publicly confronting Mikhail Gorbachev when he said, if you seek peace, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Friend, this message is God publicly confronting you And telling you, if you seek peace and rest, tear down your wall of idolatry. God is calling for you to come running to the freedom found only in his son, Jesus Christ. These words in Matthew 11 are proof of the love, purpose, and rest that you will find only through Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. And this brings us to our final point this morning, number two in your notes. I know that you already knew the answer. You knew that this is where we were going. Jesus Christ is the only way out of suicide. Jesus Christ is the only way out of suicide. To be sure, Jesus Christ and him crucified to pay for sins is the only message with the power to heal your guilt, sin, and shame. Only when a human heart looks at Christ, beholds his grace, mercy, and power, and the truthfulness of his message, that he is God. And that he did die an effective death to pay for the sin of those who would follow him. Only at this point are you able even to begin to fight off suicide. Because in all honesty, Clay and any others who have taken their lives or thought to take their lives have been closer to truth than the countless billions of prideful, idolatrous sinners 
who foolishly think that they are in control and doing well, and they walk among you every day. Think about it. Those who commit suicide have concluded this. Those who commit suicide have concluded, this life is awful. This place is horrible. I can't stand this place. I can't stand what is happening inside of me. These thoughts deserve empathy and sympathy. They are right conclusions to what's going on that too often get followed with wrong solutions. As Pastor Nicholas Ellen says, people who commit suicide have human observation, but no biblical interpretation. And far too often, they run to a psychologist who can't talk about God, sin, salvation, and they get a label for their behavior and a prescription for medication. Can we all agree that Christ alone is the answer? Someone will say to me, but Pastor Oliver, Pastor Oliver, Christians end their lives in suicide too. And you're right. But how does that fact change anything that I've said? When a Christian commits suicide, it only further proves the depth of sin that still lives in each one of us. Is it possible for any of us to be a Christian today and to worship an idol today? I sing the head nods. Yeah, because many of you have already been on your phone for two hours and it's not even lunchtime. Does your last act of idolatry have the ability to remove God's free gift of salvation? Not a chance. That would make man more powerful than God in salvation. Besides the fact that if Christ can't pay for the last sin that a Christian commits, how can it be said that his blood given for you paid for the first sin that you committed or any sin in between? Christ paid for all the sins of those whom God has chosen. It is for this reason that God's elect continually draw near to God. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. We must continually receive the truth of God's word and treasure it in our hearts and minds. When we do this, we are gaining a biblical worldview, which allows us to contend with all the pains and suffering and noise of life, of a noisy soul, of a guilty conscience. And more importantly, it helps us fight our own idolatry. I've said other people are idol worshipers and idolaters. Can I just tell you, I'm one as well. Do you have a biblical worldview? Do you know the purpose of your life? Let me give you both. You exist to glorify God. God made you in his image and after his likeness. And yet you are a rebel bound in idolatry. And while you were yet his enemy, God sent Jesus Christ, his son, to pay the price to remove the stain of sin that you could never remove yourself. And he gave this free gift of grace to all those who would simply believe. Without this worldview, it's impossible to please God. And without this worldview, suicide becomes a powerful option for a noisy soul. The only way out from a path to suicide is more thoughts of Jesus, less thoughts of self, more doubt of self, more exaltation of God, and a worldview that matches God's plan. Finally, The only way out of suicide, oddly enough, is dying, is to die a death. You saw this this morning in the baptisms behind me. You watched two symbolic and metaphorical deaths this morning. People willing to die, choosing to die. Did you know that? And that there are so many tears and great joy in what we witnessed this morning. Because both Jake and Anna testified that they have died. When they went under the water, they died to themselves to show their old, wicked, sinful self had died with Christ. And they were raised again to newness of life, this time in victory in Christ. They have hope. The supernatural has come. God tore down the idolatry in their heart, made them his children, filled their hearts with peace and joy and rest, and will sustain them, you, will sustain you all the way through the whole course of your life till you die and it's joyful and you go to be with God in heaven forever. How's that? That's what he's prepared for you. These are beautiful and wonderful and glorious treasures. And you join with Paul and with me and every other believer when he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Idolatry is so evil and deceptive. It is self-worship, and it is the heat source of all suicides. I showed it to you with Ahithophel, who took his life because of his dignity, not because of depression. We saw it with Judas, who took his life for his own comfort's sake, not for guilt. They both owned kingdoms of self-focus and self-glory, which ended with a desire to honor and serve self one last time. This makes me think about the honor that we gave to our veterans at the beginning of the service. Honor due because of a willingness to die for a friend. Honor given for showing love to others, not love to self. Which is why veteran suicide is such a mystery for our culture. Jesus said this, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's a good place for us to stop this morning. Are you Jesus' friend? Do you know his commands? Do you do his commands? This is the biggest safety net that you could possibly imagine to keep you from suicide. Otherwise, this world is so wicked. But God has done such a powerful thing through Christ and through salvation. And he is the only source of hope and the only way out. I hope this has been helpful for you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we delight in your word. We treasure it. Without your word, we are left to our own thoughts. Do we really presume to trust ourselves? How dare we trust ourselves? Our thoughts are so wicked, so sinful. Continually, we want to seek our own satisfaction in this world. And yet you have done marvelous, glorious works. Oh, Lord, you have done marvelous and glorious works in saving us in paying a price that we can't pay for a clear conscience, a guilt-free and shame-free existence, and glory with you forever. Lord, we pray that more would believe that they would hear this message, that they would flee the idolatry that leads to suicide, that they would know a biblical worldview, and that we would run to your arms. Indeed, you're a Savior who has a light burden for us to carry. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.